the Anesthesia Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Anesthesia Journal live broadcast, which is all about the new international multidisciplinary consensus statement on prevention of opioid-related harm in adult surgical patients. With us today, we have Dr. Jane Quinlan from Oxford and Dr. Nicholas Levy from Bury St. Edmunds, who are co-authors of the paper. Uh, they aim to provide, as well as our other authors, a balanced, guide, a balanced guidance on the safe perioperative use of opioids in adults. This guidance should assist healthcare professionals and hospitals across the world to implement effective opioid stewardship practices uh, that achieve a balance between the administration of sufficient opioid analgesia to facilitate recovery and restoration of function, while concurrently minimising the risk of opioid-related harms. Uh, So welcome, Jane, and welcome, Nicholas. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Um, So my first question um, will go to you, uh, Nicholas. Why was this consensus statement written, uh, and how did you do it? So essentially, back in 2017, um, we were beginning to realize that there was a problem with persistent post-operative opioid use. Uh, And at the 2018 uh, ERAS conference, uh, we undertook a questionnaire to see what opioid stewardship was like around the world uh, amongst the delegates at the ERAS conference. And we realized that opioid stewardship really was pretty much non-existent. And so that really was the springboard for organizing people, uh, multidisciplinary people interested uh, in preventing opioid-related harms uh, to come together and write an international consensus. Uh, And so we we looked at people who were interested in preventing opioid-related harm uh, from across the world, we use era specialists, we use pain specialists, uh, we use nursing uh, specialists and, and primary care. Uh, and it was quite a while in its gestation, but I think we got there. So thank you. It's, it's a really impressive document and there's an awful lot of information in there. And uh, as well as it being a clinical guideline, it's, it's very educational as well. And I have to say that the, that the figures are, are absolutely excellent. Um, and um, um, I'll, I'll just um, um, ask another fo- sort of follow-up question about the consensus statement itself and, and how it was done. So how, how does it differ from the other available statements uh, that are out there? Um, and which part of the perioperative period does it mainly address? So when one looks at uh, the other guidance that is out there, it is mainly from America and mainly about limiting the duration of the opioids uh, and also trying to avoid the use of modified released opioids, which are one of the most highly uh, biggest risk factors for subsequent PPOU, persistent postoperative opioid use. But we thought we would like to expand it uh, to include the other harms uh, that we see from uh, opioids, uh, and that includes opioid-induced ventilatory impairment, uh, where people, which is the cause of people dying mainly from opioids. Uh, we wanted to include uh, diversion, whereby people uh, gain access to illicitly prescribed drugs and then use them illicitly. We wanted to look at uh, drug driving. And we wanted to look at the whole of the patient pathway from preoperative uh through to uh, post-operative uh, preparation for discharge and then 
at discharge, following discharge as well. So it very much covers the, the, the whole of the perioptive pathway. We specifically in, excluded the intraoperative period because it's just such a heterogeneous area. Um, but that is really how it differs. Uh, and what it, what it is, it's, it covers the whole of the patient pathway uh, and it looks at other opioid harms apart from PPOU, persistent post-operative opioid use. I'll just pick you up on that uh, comment about the intraoperative period, because I know there has been some reaction on Twitter um, specifically about regional anesthesia. Um, I don't know if either of you have got any sort of um, comments about that and, and why that particularly wasn't addressed um, as part of the statement. I, I, we did look at it, uh, but, and we found three papers, uh, one looking at the role of, of epidurals, uh, looking at uh, the use of epidurals in colorectal surgery, uh, and whether the epidural prevented uh, persistent post-operative opioid use. And unfortunately, uh, the rates of opioid use at 90 days were the same with or without an epidural. And also we looked at uh, a paper by Mueller, uh, who, and they looked at 7,000 uh, patients undergoing shoulder surgery. And again, at 90 days, whether the patients had uh, regional block or no block, the rates of opioid use were the same. And lastly, there was a paper by Sun uh, who looked at 120,000 patients uh, undergoing total knee replacement uh, with or without regional anesthesia. Uh, and the incidence of PPOU was exactly the same. So really, despite people's best intentions and best wishes, there is no evidence uh, that regional anesthesia reduces the uh, risk of PPOU, uh, and it's probably all due to the fact that the subsequent opioid stewardship is not any better. Yeah, I guess, I mean, my own take from reading the paper was that um, that this is far more than sort of the period where the anaesthetist is with the patient in theatre, and, and there's lots more that happens before and afterwards that those anaesthetists can influence. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just bring, bring you in, Jane, um, and ask you a question if that's okay about mm -hmm. persistent post-operative uh, opioid use. Um, there's loads of definitions out there, uh, which I guess was one of the things that made this quite a challenging piece of work to undertake. Uh, so how did you define it? Um, and why do you think there's been so much inconsistency about its definition? Yeah, I was a bit surprised when we started looking at it about the, the number of definitions there were. A lot of the um, papers have come from the States and they look at the number of prescriptions filled after surgery. And they were looking at patients who are still taking opioids 60 days, 90 days, 365 days, or in some cases, even three years after surgery. And so we decided to, to just have a much simpler and much more logical definition of PPOU. Um, and we looked at the International Association for the Study of Pain, who um, described chronic pain as any pain after three months. So acute pain would be expected after surgery or trauma to last for up to three months, by which time all healing should have com been complete inflammatory processes will have um, will be complete as well. So any pain after that is chronic pain and would not be opioid responsive. So we felt that by using that three month cutoff, we could then say that anyone who was still taking um, opioids that were prescribed for post-operative pain um, would have PPOU rather than be an appropriate use of opioids. 
and that's that's what we kind of stuck with really seems like a really sensible definition for me and it's um uh, I guess I hope that a lot of us watching this or, or others studying this topic will maybe think about using that so we can all have that consistency, I guess, because that'll be really yeah. important going forward. Yeah. Um, so we're just, just on that as well, we talked about persistent post-operative opioid use and um, ventilator impairment uh, and some risk factors are set out in the paper. But a, 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 are the only patients that are affected by that those that necessarily have the risk factors or, or is it something that affects potentially all patients? Yeah, what's been really interesting doing all the literature review preparing for the paper is that actually this PPOU and OVI, OIVI can affect anybody having post-operative opioids. And so it's, it's really important that we have really good processes for all patients who are prescribed these drugs after surgery. And so there's no point just looking at people who may be high risk for PPOU, and that's patients who are on opioids before they have surgery, who have um, psychological comorbidities. Um, or who have addiction histories in the past and just assuming they're the only ones who are at risk of PPOU if we then send every patient we see home with two to four weeks of strong opioids we're then just you know leading them up for failure really and similarly for um, OIVI if we just assume that people with sleep apnea and obesity are the ones we should be looking at we're going to be missing the majority of patients who actually get it and when you look at the studies, most patients with OIVI are the ones who have no identifiable risk factors. So it's really important that we make sure that everyone is treated well and we have really good processes to do that so that all patients have sedation scoring to look out for OIVI and all patients have very limited discharge for prescribing so that we don't expose them to that risk. Nick, um, do, do you think that opioid-induced um, ventilatory impairment is a... Um, what sort of magnitude of a, of a problem is it at the moment, do you think, in, in, in the UK? I'm, I think it's rare, but it's a big problem. Uh, people do die from it, and all the deaths, acute deaths from opioids, are due uh, to opioid-induced ventilatory impairment. So it is, it is not a benign condition. Mm -hmm. um, the rates... Depending on what surrogate marker one uses, the rates is anything anywhere between 0.1% uh, to 1%. Uh, and it's probably nearer from, if we think about our own practice, nearer the 0.1%. But it does cause patient harm, it does cause hypoxic brain injury, and it does cause death. And I am aware of various coroner's courts uh, cases uh, where opioids in hospital have led to death. Hmm. Um, one thing that um, we've seen in, in recent times, and it's been publicised probably more in America rather than the UK, but I think we're starting to get the message now in the UK, um, is about dissociating ourselves from pain as a fifth vital sign. And there's obviously been, I know Nick, you've written something about that recently. Uh, and um, that's been a really big drive over in America. But it looks like there's still quite a lot to do in the preoperative period, such as, for example, you know, assessing pain and psychological disorders, managing expectations, uh, assessing patients properly and recognising all patients and all procedures as at risk. So um, for, for either of you, how, how do you think anaesthetists can get involved in their own departments in uh, making all these uh, improvements? If I can step in first, really. Um, I think pre-assessment is really important. And I think 
um, we need to be addressing patient expectations um, at pre-assessment, you know, before they even come in from surgery. And so if patients come in expecting that after surgery, they will be comfortably numb and they will have no pain, a pain score of zero, then I think that's unrealistic expectations. And further, if we then have junior doctors who kind of conspire to chase that dream of a pain score of zero, we're going to be overloading patients with opioids and exposing them to significant risk. I think we need to be explained to patients in pre-assessment that some degree of discomfort is to be expected and that we'll be using different types of pain relief. So we need to really optimize multimodal analgesia and that we're going to be giving them short acting opioids to enable them to have an active recovery, to enable them to function. And that also it's, it's a good time to explain to them that when they go home, we would expect them to use strong opioids just for a few days and then to teach them how to wean down their analgesia safely when they're at home, rather than again, have patients who just carry on taking things because they were, they were sent home with them. Um, and I think um, we can also, in a pre-assessment, identify patients who do have risk factors, who might go on opioids preoperatively or might have psychological factors like surgical anxiety, that we find drive opioid prescribing postoperatively and lead to PPOU. And if we can identify these patients and do something about it, then that's useful. The caveat though, of course, is that a lot of pre-assessment clinics happen just a few days before patients are admitted for surgery. So I think this is where we need to make sure that we engage surgeons to be thinking about these things when they first lift a patient for surgery, so that we have time to support a patient coming down on their opioid doses and do an opioid wean to reduce their risks. Uh, it's not just PPOU and OIVI, but they have other risks as well if they come with high dose opioids. And also to just their psychological comorbidities. If we can, there have been some really good um, uh, studies where they look at addressing surgical anxiety before someone comes to, to surgery and find they actually have a much better recovery than those who haven't had any interventions. But these things take time. Um, and so I think by, I think anaesthetists in their departments can do a lot, um, but the most important thing for all of this is opioid stewardship has to be across the whole organisation and surgeons need to be part of that, which is important. I guess the only thing that I would like to, to add to, to, to Jane's answer, and again, it's, it's our building on expectations. Um, as we all know, we are living in strange COVID times and the, the waiting lists and waiting times are extending. And actually, that waiting time can should now be used as a preparation time uh, to managing all of these problems, not just pain, opioids, uh, but their comorbidity. And obviously, I would like diabetes to be optimized as well during this period as well. So we should be there should be a sort of a mindset change uh, in that the, the, the waiting list should be the preparation time. Uh, and we can try and fix these things during that period and get the expectations right. That's yeah, a really um, strong argument for a change in mindset, isn't it? To change from uh, you know, having patients out there just simply waiting for an operation to having patients out there getting ready for surgery. Uh, mm. And um, I, know, I know there was some comments on, on Twitter in the run-up to this today um, asking how we reduce um, preoperative opioids in patients. But I guess there's no one answer to that. It's quite complex, isn't it? It is, I think it's really complex. And um, I think there is definite benefit to bringing down patients' opioids if they're on high dose opioids, particularly if they're above 120 milligrams, which is a 
Morphine Equivalent, which is a British Pain Society's uh, guide. In fact, there's evidence um, that patients really ought to be brought down below 60 milligrams of morphine equivalent dose to, to really be more protective. But um, these are often patients who have complex uh, psychological comorbidities and just reducing down their opioids in the community may not be enough to address that. So we'd need multidisciplinary teams to help them with their psychological, um, to get a bit more psychological support. And a lot of GPs wouldn't know how to wean down opioids for their patients. And a lot of pain teams and pain services are already kind of pretty overwhelmed and don't have the capacity to do it either. And these things take time. If someone is on very high doses, we might be looking at six months before we get their dose down to a much safer level. So I think, you know, my, my hope in some ways is if we can get surgeons to view this as a, as a risk factor for outcomes in the same way you would do for a high BMI and give patients a goal and say for elective surgery, we'll go ahead when you hit this target for your BMI or when you hit this target for your opioid dose and have that as a, as a risk redu reduction measure, which I think would be useful. But it's not an easy fix. And I think we need to look in, in a bit more detail at that. The, the other thing to add at this point, um, and again, as anaesthetists, we don't always have con control of the situation, uh, but whilst opioids are very good, for acute pain they def and palliative pain, they definitely have a limited role uh, in, non in chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, and so for joint pain, they really aren't the greatest things. And there is increasing evidence uh, that lifestyle changes are probably better than the use of opioids. Mm -hmm. So if we can get in early enough, we can prevent patients from becoming dependent uh, on opioids and getting the problems of acute tolerance, chronic tolerance, and opioid-induced hyperalgesia that occurs with the chronic use of, of opioids. And so much so that patients don't get the benefit of opioids. Just had a, a question there um, from a viewer who, who asked what the key messages are for, for patients. And I guess some, some of that's probably been answered in, in the last few minutes. Um, and I guess there were lots of things uh, that, that, that we need to tell patients from from what you've said and um, I guess there's no one answer to that really but ho hopefully we can sort of go through that as we go through some of these other questions. Um, now we've got a really good paper come in to celebrate our 75th anniversaries you know we, we're um, going through lots of um, uh, our archives and um, one of our most cited papers is, is about pain scales and pain scores um, and um, Helen Laycock and um, William Harrock Griffiths have written a really nice paper that's that's going to be um, in the April April issue, I think, uh, about pain scales and and, and measuring pain. Um, and Jane, I'm just going to ask you about that in particular. So, what what are the alternatives for assessing pain in the post-operative period um, as compared with um, the common example, which is unidimensional pain scores? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think. Um, with the best one in the world, unidimensional pain scales have, have caused a lot of problems in the fact that opioids have been used to try and get an artificial number from high to low um, without necessarily looking at a good functional recovery. So there's a bit more focus just in the last couple of years, really, on functional activity scales, where you're looking at whether pain is actually stopping a patient being able to do an activity that's going to help them recover. And that activity may, may vary on the operation. So it may be 
um, doing their physio and exercises after a total knee or total hip arthroplasty, or it might be taking a deep breath after rib fractures or after a soft jectomy, for example. Um, and the functional activity score, there's a very simple one where it looks at A, B, and C. A is if you're able to do your activity with no, um, uh, with no problem at all. B is if pain is limiting it a bit, but you can just about manage. Or C is if, if pain is so severe, you can't achieve your activity at all. And I think by combining the subjective use of pain scores um, and by using either mild, moderate, or severe, which I think is probably preferable to using a 0 to 10 scale, and then looking at how that patient can um, perform their activity, which is a more, bit more objective, we can use those two things to really help patients recover better. And using you know, short-acting opioids, if someone is not um, functioning particularly well, um, to do their exercises, but actually if they're functioning well but describing a high subjective pain score, then that may, may prompt a discussion with them about distress or anxiety or other issues that are compounding their pain. So I think I, I really want to be cautious about encouraging people to move away from subjective pain scores and move completely to objective pain scores. Otherwise, we risk going back to the 1970s, 1980s where the doctors and nurses decided if you got an IM injection of morphine, based on whether you, how much you are crying, we want to move away from that. But I think we can combine the subjective with um, a functional activity scale to be much more focused on how patients are doing. I mean, for example, you might have um, uh, an elderly patient who doesn't want to bother the nurses and is lying rigid in bed because of pain and can't really mobilise, but actually describes her pain as mild because she doesn't want to make a fuss was actually we'd be encouraging her to have more analgesia, to get moving and achieve more. Whereas other people who you might be a bit more concerned about their reasons for asking for analgesia may have very good function, but then describe very high pain scores. And we can maybe you know, talk to them a bit more about anxiety and other ways of managing their pain with distraction or relaxation, rather than just drive these numerical pain scores with opioids. Can I just uh, add to that? So I think Jane is, is quite right. There is a place for both the unidimensional and the functional activity score. Um, and I think the, the use of the functional activity score is, is to allow us to administer opioids to, to promote, if required, to promote the required function. But the numerical pain score does have a role. And I'm sure everybody who's ever done on a pain round will always remember these patients who've had a surgical catastrophe, whether it be compartment syndrome uh, or a leak, uh, whereby actually their pain trajectory and their pain score was low, and then suddenly it peaks and your ears just pick up, hmm, there's something not quite right here. And it enables you or to, to diagnose issues. So I think there is a role for the new unidimensional pain score, but it should not be um, making us administer the opioids. Uh, and I would just, just like to give one further example. Uh, at the turn of the century, when the American Pain Society did bring in the pain as a fifth vital sign and hospitals in America were adopting it, uh, there was one hospital that looked at their incidence of over-sedation before and after introduction of pain as the fifth vital design and using the, the numerical pain score. And they found that the risk, and sorry, the incidence of over-sedation 
doubled because people were getting too much, too much opioids. And that is the problem of just blindly following the numerical pain score. It doesn't give the whole picture. Um, one of the things from reading the paper um, that's probably challenged um, my own practices, um, say for example, a patient that's had cardiac anesthesia, um, our drug Cardex, we might have pre-printed some long-acting opioids or, or some, you know, morphine sulfate, MR, et cetera. Um, and um, don't tend to think really much about that. You just tend to sign it and, and, and give it, um, you know, that's the tick box of analgesia for, for that particular operation. And um, perhaps maybe we need to do things differently because um, from the paper, I think that one of the key messages is that um, many of us still prescribe long-acting opioids and compound form formations, but that is really something that's got to change going forward. Uh, Nick? Yep, totally agree. Uh, there are several studies from America uh, that quite clearly and categorically show that modified release opioids uh, are one of the biggest risk factors for persistent post-operative opioid use. Uh, and that's beyond, beyond doubt. Um, it also must be remembered that the the, the the most popular common one is OxyContin, which is produced by Purdue. Purdue have been declared bankrupt and have also faced federal charges uh, for the way they've misbranded and mispromoted their OxyContin product. And they're really, uh, I mean, it's been, it is criminal the way that they have pushed OxyContin. But what is also quite interesting, uh, if I can just highlight two other factors. Firstly, when one looks at the papers that Purdue used to promote OxyContin, uh, I don't think they would pass muster anymore. They were clearly sponsored by them. They were written by, by them. Uh, and they were advocate comparing oral compounds, oral modified release versus PCAs and epidurals and saying their oral preparation promoted mobilization. Well, that's hardly a fair comparison. It's just that PCAs and epidurals tether the patient to the bed. So it's hardly surprising that patients, if they're given oral products, are going to mobilize uh, quicker. Uh, another paper that they use was uh, created by Scott Rubin, who uh, has gone down in history for being one of the few anesthetists to go to prison for fabrication of results. And what I think is even more interesting is if you look at the summary of product characteristics of these modified release preparations. Um, so. Uh, that tells a completely different story as well, and that we are using them as unlicensed preparations. And actually we're getting the trainees to use them as unlicensed preparations, which completely uh, contradicts their GMC Good Prescribing Act. So if you look at uh, transdermal fentanyl, for example, it specifically says uh, contraindicated for post-operative use. If you look at the product characteristics uh, of OxyContin, 
it says uh, do not use in opioid naive patients and only use once an assessment of the previous opioid requirements and a pain assessment has been made. Therefore, if we are using predetermined doses of OxyContin, we are using it as an unlicensed preparation and we're going against uh, the product characteristics and we're going against our GMC obligations uh, in prescribing. Jane, anything on those um, um, agents that Nick's um, uh, highlighted there and pointed out? And, and I guess what, what are the alternatives um, to those prescribing practices? Yeah, I think I think it's been it's been quite interesting to watch ERAS programs generally adopt these modified release uh, uh, formulations without much question. And as Nick points out, a lot of it is based on really shaky. Uh, evidence and some of it, uh, especially Scott Rubin's work, frankly illegal, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, but I think um, it has become a habit. And I think um, we are exposing, especially elderly patients after taking the internal hip replacements, who will all get sent home on these modified release preparations, we're exposing them to significant risk. It's not just the PPOU, but it's also the OIVI as well. Um, and I think we need to go back to basic principles of acute pain management and use short-acting opioids as part of a multimodal analgesic plan um, to um, enable people to function both in hospital and when they go home. And by getting rid of these MR opioids, um, we should actually be able to keep people much safer. But we have to make sure that, that patients understand the need to use PRNs proactively before they do something painful and then how to wean them off. And um, one of the things we're doing at the moment is working with the British Pain Society and the Faculty of Pain Medicine, as well as other bodies to produce patient leaflets, both to manage their preoperative um, expectations before they come to surgery, but also gives them much more information for when they go home about how to wean down their opioids when they get home. But I think the other thing to bear in mind in all of this is that opioids are fantastic analgesics for acute pain. And with all the concern over opioids generally over the last 10 years or so, and the fact that we now know that they're not particularly effective in chronic pain and shouldn't be used long term in chronic pain, we need to make sure we're still giving patients enough opioid after surgery to make a really good recovery and not be too scared about sending people home with short acting. Um, mm. And that would be my, my biggest concern, I think. Yeah, I'd just like to echo those feelings. I, 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 I think from reading what's going on in America, the pendulum of opioid use uh, is swinging too far about being restrictive uh, and has par gone past the sweet spot uh, whereby actually opioids do have a role uh, in promoting recovery and promoting restoration of, of function. But because of what is now going on in America, there is a much more restrictive practice on their opioid on opioid use and opioid prescribing. There is a role, and I like to reiterate Jane's point. There is a role for the use of opioids uh, in the management of acute pain, but it needs to be of limited duration. Yeah, I mean, this, this all reminds me of um, the editorial from Ed Mariano and and, uh, and colleagues um, about opioid-free anaesthesia and how um, perhaps that's a concept that. Um, that we always talk about, but we we don't perhaps understand all that well. And um, um, some some of the thoughts there, you know, from pain medicine as well. Um, 
show that in actual fact these medicines, you know, can can do a lot of, of good if, uh, if if given properly and um, and with appropriate opioid stewardship, which which is a, a theme running throughout this paper that's really important, I guess. And um, mm. uh, hopefully we'll, we'll we'll be able to talk about opioid stewardship uh, a little bit later before we finish. Um, so we've got lots of, of old habits to break. Um, so Jane, I'm going to ask you about um, what departments and hospitals can do um, to what they can do more of to mitigate the occurrence of um, uh, opioid-induced ventilator impairment that we touched on earlier. But what, what specifically can hospitals and departments do? Yeah, I think we need to um, educate ward nurses and ward staff generally in incorporating sedation scores as part of their routine monitoring for all patients post-operatively who get opioids. Um, and sedation scores are far more sensitive at picking up OIVI than respiratory rate or oxygen saturation. Um, and so I think that, that needs to be done you know, routinely for everybody. Um, and I think we're, we're back to prescribing again, really. I think we need to move away from modified release. Sorry to bang on about that. We need to be using um, short-acting opioids, but the initial doses needs to be age-based. Um, as people get older, they need smaller doses and we need to recognize that. Um, and we also need to stop prescribe, stop co-prescribing with other sedative drugs like benzodiazepines or more importantly, gabapentinoids. And again, gabapentinoids have kind of snuck into ERAS protocols commonly without people really understanding that they're increasing the, the patient's risk of OIVI if they're co-prescribed with opioids. And it's not clear in many circumstances how, how much the gabapentinoids are bringing to the party in the terms of good analgesia, really. Um, and we need to make sure that when we send patients home with opioids, that we carry those messages on, that they know when they're at home, they'll be taking opioids for a few, a, a small number of days, but during that time, they mustn't be drinking alcohol with them, they mustn't dig out a, a sleeping tablet from the back of the bathroom cabinet to, to sleep with them. And, and also to educate the carers on what to look out for, if they're, and, and how to escalate any concerns. If they're concerned that the patient is unmousable or if their breathing has slowed down dangerously, they, they need to know, they need to call an ambulance and how best to go about that. So I think just by making sure that people are aware of the risks and even if these risks are small, the consequences are, are huge for these patients. So just by incorporating it as routine monitoring in um, for ward staff, um, but doing it reliably and um, carefully, I think that's, that's really important. I totally concur with what Jane has just said. But the other thing is, actually, we now have legal obligations to do this. Uh, the MHRA uh, is slowly picking up on the fact that there is, there are massive concerns about the use of opioids um, and have recently uh, released guidance about the fact that when we do prescribe opioids, we do need uh, to come up with a deprescribing plan. They've also suggested uh, at the same time uh, as Jane was highlighting, that actually we should not be co-prescribing opioids and gabapentinoids. And, and, and lastly, in terms of the MHRA, uh, they are advising that when we uh, use certain drugs like OxyContin, we do need to be uh, undertaking sedation scores. Uh, and what I would like everyone to think about, does your hospital do sedation scores? And I would suggest the answer is probably no. 
because sedation scores are not APU scores and they're not part of News 2. So I would argue that most of us and most of our hospitals, we're not doing sedation scores and we're not compliant with the MHRA on these things. I mean, there is a, a lot happening in this area, like you've alluded to, Nick. There's um, the recent um, MR, MHRA guidance and there's some updated GMC guidance, I believe, as well, that's been published recently. Um, question for, for, uh, for either of you is, um, what do you think the future research priorities are in this area? And what's the next, this is the first consensus statement. We hope there'll be another one in the future. What, what will that one in the future look like in, say, five or 10 years time? Mm. That's a good question. I think what we've what we've found and what we we hope have shown is that there's a real need for opioid stewardship to be introduced across all institutions um, in the country, really. And opioid stewardship is defined as a coordinated interventions to improve, monitor, and evaluate the use of opioids to support and promote human health. And that can't be done by one person or one speciality alone. It has to be the whole hospital changing their their approach to opioid prescribing. And that also needs to then extend out into primary care as well, so that we need much better communication with, with GPs. So we need to educate anaesthetists, surgeons and ward staff about how to do safe prescribing on the wards um, and avoiding MR, one more time, I do apologise, um, using um, immediate release and using functional activity scores in, in addition to um, uh, more subjective pain management as well to make sure the patients are using opioids to actually get better and improve their function. Um, and I think what's really important, and also we should be measuring sedation scores, but what's really important, I think, as part of this is educating junior doctors who are usually the most junior members of the team who end up doing all the discharge prescribing. Mm. And as long as they have no idea what they're doing, why would they? And as long as they carry on prescribing 14 or even 28 days worth of strong opioids for patients to take home, um, then we're going to carry on having this problem. And I think by um, educating these, these junior doctors and how best to prescribe, and we're looking, I think, now at maximising three to seven days worth of strong opioids at most, such that if patients still need more, you know, still have pain and are still struggling at home, they go and see their GPs rather than just keep on taking strong opioids for weeks or months after um, their surgery, then that's really important. And I think educating both board staff and um, patients about how to de-prescribe once they go home is really important. So pharmacy, I think, have a, an overarching um, role to play in all of this um, when they can actually help design some of the electronic prescribing uh, systems that might have guidance within them or might have um, forcing functions so that every open prescription has naloxone co-prescribed with it um, and I'm always a bit cautious about advising we ought to have more alerts and warnings on electronic prescribing systems because we do get um, alert weary really but I think it's, it's been clear looking at all the evidence we've, we've gone through that different operations um, produce pain that lasts a different amount of time which is hardly news but therefore we need to be prescribing opioids depending on the operation that someone's had so someone after hernia repair may not need any TTO opioids. Someone after a softectomy or thoracotomy may well need them for um, seven days. And so we should have much more procedure-specific guidance on discharge prescribing, but also patient-modified. 
so that if you have a patient who has used no opioids in the last 24 hours, you should not be prescribing opioids for them to take home. And we need to have better communication with primary care so that we know that these, won't, these prescriptions won't be put onto an automated repeat prescription plan so the patient won't just carry on getting their opioids. And I think as well as protecting the patient in front of us with all of these things that involves an awful lot of education and support generally, we need to be thinking about the community. If we keep on prescribing large doses and large numbers of opioid tablets that go out into the community, we produce a huge reservoir of dangerous opioids that might be in bathroom cabinets, and therefore there's a risk of toddlers um, taking a, an accidental overdose with, you know, we know there have been tragic circumstances of that. There's a risk that teenagers may start to experiment with drugs that they find at home. And a rather terrifying uh, study we found was that 50% of young adults and teenagers who are now addicted to opioids got their first drugs as prescribed opioids that they found either from friends or family. So we need to make sure we don't have those available. And then there's a risk of diversion when they can be put into the illicit population and essentially find that the NHS are, are kind of providing this, this whole um, amount of drug ready for the street population, which isn't safe. So we do have responsibility to the patient in front of us and to the community. And I think it'll be an easy thing to make this a lot safer, but we need to, to make sure that everyone in the hospital organization is involved in making it so. It's not gonna be just single, any suggest trying to make things better. It's got to be everyone working together. Nick, any more comments to add? Okay, uh, yeah, just like to reiterate what Jane was saying, but I think the other thing is, as well as limiting the duration, when we get prescribe opiates for discharge, it is at, the, at really a best guess, and it's a generous best guess because we don't want them get to go back and bother the GPs. So we might give them too many opioids. But actually, to prevent uh, opioid diversion and to reduce this reservoir of unused opioids that is an, that is able to be diverted, patients need to be instructed to dispose of unused opioids uh, immediately and safely. Uh, and that means taking them to the pharmacy or back to the GP or to the hospital to dispose of. Uh, and uh, people will be aware, uh, if they follow Twitter, of sometimes people when people are looking at the amount of drugs that are in people's drug cabinets, it's just amazing and it's huge. And these drugs are then available for diversion, which, which Jane was saying. So actually patients need to be educated on, on, on safe disposal of their unused opioids. So they're not there uh, for diversion, not there to cause their own ventilatory impairment, uh, and they're not there as a rescue just for a little bit of joint ache and then uh, causing persistent post-operative opioid use. And I know from speaking to medical colleagues that have been prescribed OxyContin and leave it in their cabinet, they say it winks at you. It's very Norish. It's very nice. And actually, by disposing it of it safely, you get removed that temptation. Mm. Uh, so I really reckon that one of the, the, the big areas of research and recommendations must be safe disposal of unused opioids so that we can't uh, cause harm. 
uh, and I know from speaking to pharmacy friends, actually uh, the utilizing drug driving and the, the threat of saying, don't drug drive while you're on opioids is a huge incentive to coming off opioids and then uh, disposing of them safely because people want their liberty of their cars and their driving. And so being told that they can't drive um, is a huge incentive of coming off uh, their opioids, if possible. And I think, I think Mike, the, the other thing is safe storage. I think a, a lot of patient, patients don't realise, you know, how dangerous these drugs are, and they might just leave them you know, lying around. What we'd like is for everyone to be locking these drugs away so they're kept safe. And I, I, I can't imagine how many people actually do that. I suspect it's perishingly small. So I think all of these factors are really important, but an open stewardship generally is really important. What we don't know, and so finally to answer your question, I do apologize, um, is which of these um, interventions um, are gonna be most effective to improve this? And education is certainly something that is relatively easy, but has been not as effective as people have hoped in either educating junior doctors on how to prescribe better or educating patients on how to do things better. So one thing we're, we're working on at the moment with the British Pain Society and the, and the Faculty of Pain Medicine is this, this patient leaflet to try and address the patient education point of view and having websites to give more information to those patients. But how it'd be interesting to find out when people are introducing opioid stewardship programs in their hospitals, which ones are the most successful to have the most impact and uh, produce most safety? Well, I, I feel like I understand the paper and the issues um, around it an awful lot more now, having um, uh, spoken with you about it for the last 45 minutes. And I think we've got through an awful lot of themes there. Uh, and it just shows how rich the paper is in content and there's so much to go through and as I say the the figures are really excellent in this paper and they're worth sort of um, having a look at and saving or printing out. Just to mention there is um, an association of anaesthetists webinar coming up on the 2nd of March um, which looks really good um, so Nick Nicholas I know you're you're chairing that webinar with uh, uh, Professor William Fawcett uh, and some of the speakers in, include uh, uh, Kareem Albog-Dadley uh, Jane, you're giving a talk as well um, about drivers and recommendations to mitigate post, um, persistent post-operative opioid use. Uh, there's Professor Pamela McIntyre as well, and also uh, Ed Mariano, who I know Ed's watching at the moment because he's been tweeting uh, some of the uh, points that we've been talking about as, as the meeting's been going. So that's worth registering for on the 2nd of March. Uh, it's a webinar from the Association of Anesthetists, and you can access that on the Association of Anesthetists website. Um, so thank you very much. Um, it's been uh, a really great um, uh, session. What we're going to do now is um, we'll this will be available on, on Twitter, so the conversation can continue over there. Um, but also we're going to turn this into a podcast and that will be on iTunes and Spotify and everything else, uh, as well as the journal website. So thank you very much, uh, Jane. Thank you very much, Nicholas, as well. Uh, and um, enjoy the rest of your day, everyone. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. The Anesthesia Podcast.